Welcome to the EcoBot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists. Throughout this series, we touch on the increasingly important role that technology plays in wetland science. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we will continue to hear about how nine women professional wetland scientists, engineers, and GIS specialists navigate their career achievements and obstacles. We have a rich panel discussion. Let's see how these women scientists have helped to promote unique scientific approaches, created cutting-edge software, or written policy in respect to management and monitoring of our natural heritage. Let's jump right into our full panel Q&A discussion being hosted by Angela Stanley and Alana Cloud. So, first question today for, let's start with Megan. would really love to hear you talk a little bit about how the wetland workforce has changed since you began your career. As Alana shared with us earlier, the representation of women in the science and engineering fields has increased through time. And the proportion of women is greatest in the biological sciences. So although one person's experiences really can't be broadly generalized, what I have seen throughout my career does support these trends. So after graduating in 2005 with my doctorate, I was offered a postdoc at the USDA and I was hesitant to accept the postdoc, which would be with a research lab because there weren't any other female research scientists there at the time. And I didn't want to be the only one. Regardless, I accepted the position. And soon after, a female research scientist was hired. And when I left, about a decade later, there were two female research scientists. So that was a slow but a steady increase in representation. And then when I moved to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2016, which is largely composed of biologists, I did find that I was finally surrounded by approximately equal numbers of, of men and, and women. And that was great. And that, that definitely changed the culture. So again, my, my personal experience is likely just that. It's my personal experience, but it does support the general increase in representation of, of women in the sciences and the particularly strong representation in the biological sciences. Still, when I look at the table of contents for the book, A History of Wetland Science, a perspective from wetland leaders, I really can't help but notice that the, the folks that are interviewed, the, the leaders, are, are primarily male. In fact, only 20% of the leaders that are included within that book are female. So my sincere hope is that in the future, our representation will not only increase within schools and within kind of mid-career level folks, but also at that top level, we really need more female leaders in the sciences. Thanks, Megan. Susan Marie, similar question you mentioned earlier, definitely having experience being one of a very few number of women at the table. Could you speak to kind of how you've seen things evolve over time? Sure. Noah is a, a very male 
dominated organization. And when I joined it, I was the only professional female in our office. But I was kind of prepared for that because my undergraduate work was in geology. And geology is really male-dominated. And so I was kind of used to people underestimating me. And I took a lot of delight in showing them that they had underestimated me. There's a t-shirt out there that I recommend every woman get. It says, underestimate me. That'll be fun. So what I've seen over the years has, has just been amazing. I mean, right now in my division of my office, we have two men and everyone else is female. And I remember sitting at a staff meeting a couple of years back when we were down to just one male and said, you know what, we need to talk about diversity. Because we don't have enough men in this division. But but all kidding aside, I think that the rise of women in my workplace has been very encouraging. And it has been also, like I said, a little worrisome because I've read that fields that become dominated by women tend to become less valued. So it's, I think there's, there's going to be a kind of an interesting dynamic going on with that. Thanks, Susan Marie. I'm going to pass the next question on over to Angela. So has the rise in women been as dramatic on the technology side as on the wetland side? And if not, what can we do to encourage more women to thrive in technology-focused careers? Melanie, could you address that? Sure. Yeah. So I'm at U.S. Geological Survey, and I just looked it up the other day, and females currently represent 35% of employees with PhDs. So actually, that was much higher than I thought. We're making good progress. I started myself, I started as an ecologist, delineating wetlands and doing permitting prior to getting my PhD. But over time, I've shifted from an ecologist to a remote sensor, and increasingly, most of my projects um, involve big data, programming, cloud computing, that sort of technology. And I think a key part of having women thrive in technology-focused careers is really building those skills and an introduction to those skills into undergraduate and graduate courses. So a statistic course doesn't just have a commercial platform, you're also using having students use R. And introduction to ArcGIS class doesn't just teach you, you know, how to clip a single image. It teaches you how to use Python to clip 500 images. And ideally, programming courses with an ecology tilt or ecology applications is either a common or required part of an ecology program, an ecology degree. I suspect that if a broader range of students are introduced, you know, both males and females are introduced to these programming concepts in their education, that's gonna make them less fearful in embarking on those endeavors in their workplace. Thank you. Gina, do you have anything to add? Just a little bit, but I'll start saying that I completely agree with um, what Melanie was saying. One of my key points on this question would be that it's really important to expose just more students at undergraduate level or even before that to computer science, to modeling software, ArcGIS, just to kind of give them that exposure and the choice early on to figure out if they like it enough to let it kind of direct their further education or their career path. As far as seeing 
the split between male and female on the technology side. I guess I can speak from my experience in kind of like a software company. So the industry or technology industry side, and I do see um, more males there than a greater imbalance there than I did in graduate school. So that's just been one thing that I noticed. And I think that that kind of gets back towards Melanie's point of exposing those skills to students to learn early on. Thank you. And Caitlin, what's your take? Yeah, I would just add a little bit, but I agree with both Gina and Melanie. As somebody who just got into more of a technological role after undergrad, like just started doing some GIS in grad school and have carried that with me, I didn't know what GIS was before grad school. And I think it almost seemed a little bit inaccessible or scary or even boring. You know, if someone just says technology, if you don't really know, if you haven't really gotten into it and you can't see what you can do with it and how you can problem use it to problem solve and just help people, I think once you know that and once you learn that, it's it doesn't feel as inaccessible. And so that was that's just been my own personal experience with the technology side. Thank you. Alana. Yeah, so my next question is for Kelly. So Kelly, you have had such an incredible tenured career and been, like you said, lucky enough to get to see it all really happen in one place. So the question is, how has gender played a role in how you've been treated? And do you think that there have been any times where you face bias in the workplace? And also as a follow-up to that, what kind of disadvantages or advantages did you or do you still face as a female in wetland science? That's a lot of questions, a lot. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, obviously, you know, gender bias is real. You know, I think we've all experienced it in one way or another. It's, it's really a business issue. You know, in my experience, it's often an unconscious or kind of like unintentional bias, which just forms this like barrier to equal opportunity. So I definitely have felt it. I would say I have felt it in ways that have been to my advantage and to my disadvantage. And just being conscious of it myself has helped, at least when it's been a negative, helped try to turn it into a positive, right? Like just having that information is something that, you know, helps you. So like, for instance, if I understood that this person was going to react better to a male asking them to do it or, you know, whatnot, I would try, I would create the situation to where it would have the, you know, the intended outcome that's needed for the project or client, depending upon what the situation is. So I think just generally speaking, just awareness on all levels is helpful (laughs) um, across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Megan, You've also had such a tenured career in so many different roles. What what's your what's your thoughts on on similarly how you've experienced bias, how that might have affected you in the workplace? There have been so many examples of bias in the workplace, and I have no doubt that my gender has played a role in how I've been treated at work. I couldn't you know, possibly gauge the, the full impact. However, I feel like it's important to, to share a few examples. So I did have a past supervisor who admitted to me that 
he just didn't understand why I put in so much effort at work. Why did I try so hard when most women and minorities just weren't interested in the sciences? I mean, he was genuinely perplexed, right? And I had another former supervisor who explained to me that my male colleagues likely didn't listen to me because men often physically have a hard time hearing women just in general, because after all, he has a hard time listening to his wife. So, you know, looking back, what is obviously biased behavior, strangely, you know, what bothered me the most personally was not knowing how to react. What do you say to something like that? I mean, it's easy to kind of think about that now, but when you're in the moment, you know, what do you say? What should I have said? So I think that it's really important to share with all of you now that there is no one right thing to say or one right way to react. And I just hope that you know that you are not the cause of this toxic behavior and that you're entitled to feel and to react in whatever way you think is best in terms of advantages. And I do think that there are advantages when we face bias. For me, the greatest advantage was the community that, that, that we form, perhaps partially in response to these challenges. So challenges often serve to strengthen relationships and these relationships will get you through any challenge. So I strongly believe that it is part of the community that we have formed as a result of these challenges that we are seeing meaningful improvements in policies regarding bias towards gender and towards sexual orientation and towards race, et cetera. And to some degree, improvements in action, you know, coming together is just so important. Thanks so much, Megan. Amber, I know you're a little bit newer to your career, but would love to hear, especially as someone who's also so accomplished, just kind of what your take is on the on the same questions. Sure. I agree with everything the ladies said prior to me. And I, I guess I'll just go into a, an example. I've faced it. I've also probably been a culprit of it just because, you know, that happens. You have these biases that are just ingrained in us since we were, you know, small children, especially as someone living in the South. So my very first job in wetlands was an internship while I was in college. I had the opportunity to either go into a sort of planning type role or take on a field wetland scientist role. And I was with the CRIMS project here in Louisiana. Uh, so it meant I would get to be in an airboat like three or four times a week along the coast and I was just thrilled with the idea of doing something like that. I was told at the very beginning that it was an office. It was a field office, right? In Kaplan, which is my hometown. So I thought, well, that's great. But then they said, but it's all, you know, there's all men there. And they've never had a woman actually work in that office with them. So, you know, I think I just strapped on my my knee boots and said, you know what, I can do this, you know, I, I can, I can handle myself. And, you know, I can hold them accountable if they uh, treat me in a way that is not allowed, you know, so I did. And I did that by sort of just, I kind of do this with everything that I do. I didn't really say anything about it. I didn't try to call attention to myself. I literally just did the work. And one of the first things that we were asked to do was fill up some sandbags and a few of the guys were like, oh, if you don't feel like doing this, you don't have to. And I was like, no, I can fill up sandbags. I can use a shovel. So I went out and I busted butt and, you know, kind of really just showed them that, you know, I can do anything that you can do. And that was it. The summer was 
fine after that. And I learned a lot. And I think the guys learned a lot from, from me so much so that now they always have a female in that office. So I didn't really think about it until I was thinking about this panel and what I would say. And, but it, it was really a, a move for me and, and those group of men that changed us in some way, you know, so it was a, an interesting experience that I thought was worth, worth sharing to just, you've got to just lean in sometimes and hold people accountable when, whenever you're being mistreated and, and just set an example. Definitely. I think we just, as you were talking, got some questions about how do you respond when you encounter bias? And I think you just answered that perfectly. <laughs> you lean in and you do it well and you do it right anyway. Great. Angela, would you take off for the next? Yes. Melanie, what challenges do you think still exist for females that are seeking to balance their career with being a mom? And then is there anything you've learned from being a mother that you could use to strengthen your career? Yeah. So in addition to my role with U.S. Geological Survey, I am also a mom to three boys, uh, a seven-year-old and twins who are four. I had my first child halfway through my PhD program, which I still completed in four years. My twins were born about six months after I started with a USGS. When I became pregnant with my first child, I my PhD was being funded by a NASA Earth and Space Science Fellowship. And we looked through the entire manual and they did not appear to have a maternity leave policy. So I never really took one and I've been pretty much mixing parenting and working from the start for, for better or for worse. I, I thought about what to, how to answer this question. And I think one of the challenges for females that I've noticed is that work expectations for new moms are often dramatically lowered in a way that they're not necessarily for new dads. And I suspect that this can have um, consequences for both kind of your short and your long-term career trajectory. I would counter that being a mom, I think has made me a better employee. Being a parent forces you into a leadership position. You have to think quickly on your feet, problem solve, be resilient. I would argue there's nothing quite like navigating twins through the terrible twos to teach you some of those <laughs> skills. And I have found on several opportunities that putting my kind of calm but stern parent hat on has helped me manage employees who maybe need a little guidance to, to get them to excel. So I would encourage employers to consider the positive extra skills that moms can bring to the table. And I have a good friend who is a lawyer for the U.S. Attorney's Office and she mentioned to me once that everything else being equal, their team tends to hire working moms because they just know how to get stuff done. For sure. Thank you for that. Susan Marie, would you like to chime in? Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to add to that. I am also a mom and I, I had my kids while I was working at NOAA and I really can't say enough about the flexibility that, that my office gave me. There are things that the federal government can do throughout the federal government, and, and that's, that's pretty good right now. Recently, the federal government is now offering parental leave. It's not only maternity leave, it's also paternity leave. When I had my kids, I had to take sick leave. But it, it does depend on the office that you work in. And my, the head of my office was a dad. 
And, you know, he had a focus on work-life balance for himself that he was able to translate to his employees. And I will also say that I took my kids along with me to conferences and, you know, just kind of made them part of, of what I did every day. And uh, babies are a great draw at conferences because everybody who had to leave theirs behind will, will want to come and look at yours. So, but I just wanted to, to, you know, I guess, put in a plug for federal employment in terms of, of being very amenable to, to people being parents, whether they're mothers or fathers. That's fantastic. Megan, did you have anything you wanted to add? Sure. So I, I agree with, with Melanie and, and Susan Marie that although it is challenging to both have a career and, and children, and perhaps especially so at this time when we're balancing childcare and virtual learning, which is partly why I have a background screen on right now, we're balancing, you know, those responsibilities with, with work. It's especially hard. You know, I agree with Melanie that we do learn as mothers skills, very valuable skills that we can pull into the workplace. However, I think that perhaps the most valuable lessons that, that really are the most far-reaching are the lessons that are learned by our children as they watch us balance work and home. And my hope is that our children learn that women are leaders in science or whatever job is most meaningful for them. And that all people, including our children, deserve to live in a world of possibilities where they can choose a vocation, where they will be judged based on their contribution and not their gender, race, religion, and sexual orientation. So again, although I, I definitely agree that, that we learn from our children and we benefit at work, our children also benefit from us working. Absolutely. What a great way to be a role model. All right, Alana. All right. So Marla, this next question is for you, especially with your kind of breadth of incorporating all sorts of different social sciences alongside the biological science work. How has being a woman in the wetland science space influenced your perspective on the importance of diversity in the workspace, especially considering kind of your widespread understanding of, of the intersection of different social considerations. Yeah, in terms of how that would translate in terms of wetland science is a, is a little more challenging for me, but I can just speak, you know, on the diversity piece itself, really, in that, you know, that's always been a uh, huge priority for me. Uh, as someone in policy, the, in, in terms of like gender diversity, most of those upper level management positions are still held by by men today. If you look at, you know, even the federal government or some of the higher echelon positions, a lot of them are still held by men, and most of their staff will be women in many cases, which is, you know, interesting. You know, my experience coming up in terms of policy and some of these areas of science has, has, has again, just kind of, you, you reach a certain level as a woman and then breaking that final glass ceiling has been the hardest part. Working in the nonprofit world, there's probably more women who are actually executive directors of nonprofits than, than men. It's a little opposite in that scenario in terms of the field that I work in, particularly for smaller nonprofits. Some of the larger nonprofits are still more male dominated. But the diversity piece, I think we need to dig deeper than just women. You know, Megan touched on this quite a bit in her discussions, you know, diversity of age. And I think, you know, the biggest burden is, is held by younger women in many ways, because as you get older, you get more confident and you have more, more time to build up that, that level of confidence in terms of putting yourself out there and saying, this is when I, I'll just go, let me backtrack. When I first was offered the position of executive director and I accepted it, 
and the announcement was put out there, the biggest support came from other female colleagues in the field, whereas some of the male colleagues I'd had were honestly a little surprised. You know, they were a little taken aback at first and and that hurt a little bit at first, I will admit. But then, you know, I just said, well, that's that's okay. They're still good people. I'm going to prove to them that that I'm worthy of this position. And that's just been my attitude ever since. And it's actually been my attitude my whole life. I'm just growing up with a level of confidence that I can do this and putting myself out there. And you do fall on your face from time to time. And But that doesn't mean that you're less worthy. It just means that you need to pick yourself up and learn from your mistakes and continue to move forward, just no matter who you are or what gender you are or where you're coming from. But I think age is, a, is an important thing to consider and really providing that mentoring and support for young women and giving them those public speaking skills, not just the technology of the science, but also just how do you interact on a professional basis and giving them the skills to do that and exude that confidence and gain the respect that they need. But then also uh, looking at women of color, looking at sexual orientation, you know, my wife and I have been married for more than 10 years and, uh, you know, I still don't come out and, and broadcast that widely on, on a regular daily basis because I know there are going to be certain biases against that from the outright. And I want people to know me who I am just as Marla and in my professional role. And then, you know, that's an easier thing in a sense to kind of cover up than color or the fact that you're a woman. So there's, there's different levels and nuances of diversity that we have to consider as we move forward as women in the field of wetland science and policy that all need to be considered and all need to be discussed and, and treated um, equally. Thank you, Marla. So since we are on to our last couple minutes here, I'm going to take us ahead to our final question, um, which I want to send first over to Laura. Laura, especially leading in education right now, I would love to hear what are some ways that we can encourage and support the next generation of women to pursue careers in STEM? Thank you, Elena. So I think this really needs to start down at the elementary level. I mean, it's all, I mean, I agree with what everyone has said about how to encourage in college, at the college level to learn some of the technology skills. But I've seen in my my own daughter at like sixth, seventh grade, starting then, her not wanting to appear as this smart girl. And so she would hide her math tests in class so that no one would know. And having me as a role model, of course, did not discourage her because she she graduated last year with a degree in kinesiology and art, and she's going on to to get a master's. But but I see that with girls, and and I think we really need to start with our culture at that level because, like everyone's been saying, how women are treated in the workplace that goes all the way back to that level, and and even though teachers may be encouraging them, their peers are making them feel like they should not be smart or shouldn't be smart at math or things like that. And when I was that age, I just didn't care, <laughs> you know, but a lot of girls do, you know, they, my daughter's very social and, and that really affected her. She didn't want to be like her friend who was in all the accelerated classes. So, so when she went to go take a test to put her into those classes, she came out and said, I only answered the questions, the math questions I could do in my head. And I'm like, well, that's not going to get you in. It's like, why did you do that? But I think we, we need to figure out a way to change things at that level. But, but also once they do, I think it's really important to have networking and to get people starting in the college level then and getting them to see some role models. When I was starting out at the institute that I worked for, 
there were very few women, or at least in STEM, most of the women were secretaries or, you know, administrative staff. And so it was very hard to have someone to network with. So I think having those mentors is, is really, really important. Uh, Caitlin, what would you add, especially, I know you've had some time in a very male-dominated space. Um, so what would you add to that question? Thanks, Alana. Um, and I agree with what Laura said. You know, having a mentor is probably the most important thing for young women getting into STEM. So I think if we have the opportunity to be that mentor for somebody, I mean, we have to, we should. I had mentors when I was growing up and I, I think it's made all the difference. I don't know if they were, if I necessarily knew they were mentors at the time, you know, it's just been like family friends, family members who were in these roles. And so I just never thought twice about it. I'm like, oh yeah, my good family friend works at Argonne National Lab. And she's probably the smartest person I know. You know, the person you'd call if you were on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I'm like, she's the one I would call. And so it's that has just kind of been ingrained in me my entire life. But something else I wanted to mention is I, I did work for a civil engineering firm for about seven years. And one of my colleagues there had this awesome idea to host a Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day, which... I believe is adapted from a program that Purdue University puts on. And I learned so much from doing that. Like there are better ways to talk about STEM fields to younger girls. Don't talk about how it's all math heavy and it's all very technical and you have to love math if you wanna do STEM fields. I don't love math. And I think, you know, you have to be, you may have to be good at it, but you don't, you don't have to be passionate about it. I think you really just have to put the emphasis on helping people and how careers in STEM ultimately help people, you know, civil engineering, environmental science. And so that I think will grab the attention of the younger generation more so than focusing on the math and the technical aspects of it. You know, unless you really, really love math too, then that's also okay. But I think just thinking about how we present it and how, like what language we use around STEM can be can make a big difference for young girls. Awesome. Gina, what would you add? How do you think we can create more of an environment for younger girls to, to join STEM? Yeah, so those two takes, it's hard to add on to those. I feel like that really covered a lot of it. I would just, yeah, reiterate, maybe not emphasizing the process of learning all these skills, but also that once you have those skills, they can have really great impact. And just like Hayden said, you can help people and you can invoke change and you can help the environment. And then going back to what Laura was saying, yes, exposing girls to those, you know, coding classes or learning how to use software and how those things can be really fun to learn about at a young age and just giving them the chance to learn about those opportunities early and then letting that direct, you know, what they want to major in in college or what career they pursue, giving them the foresight of that when they're young. Before we wrap up, Marla, would love to hear your take on this question as well. You've been in the field for a while. How can we bring more girls in? I don't know what I can add that other people have said, you know, that mentoring piece again. And as I mentioned before, really helping them build those skills at building confidence, you know, how to interact with your colleagues, how to, you know, as, as, as Amber said in the chat box, stop apologizing for who you are and just be who you are and be okay with that, you know. 
I give a lot of credit to my mom as a child buying me the record Free to Be You and Me because I think it really had a huge influence on my you know, my psychology as a child growing up where you know we really do need to to encourage you know young women to be free to be themselves and to follow their passions and to not not second guess themselves anymore just put themselves out there I think that's one of the you know as as Kaylin and Gina were saying, kind of get away from some of the, the nitty gritty technical pieces and, and that, that confidence building is key. Absolutely. Thanks, Marla. Thank you so much to all our panelists for the work you do every day to inspire more women, girls, and younger generations to follow in your footsteps. Thank you for listening to the EcoBot podcast. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate review, and follow along on any podcast app, including the one you are using now. If you'd like to learn more about how Ecobot is helping transform the industry and to see what we can do to help your company by scheduling a demo, you can find us on LinkedIn or visit ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and I'll see you next time on the Ecobot Podcast.